0: Jesus tells his disciples that he'll be going to Jerusalem where he will undergo great suffering, be killed, and then be raised from the dead. Peter rebuked him for such talk, saying that this should not happen. And Jesus warns the disciples that following Jesus, seeking higher things will not be easy. Hear now the Gospel. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, "'God forbid it, Lord. "'This must never happen to you.' But he turned and said to Peter, "'Get behind me, Satan. "'You are a stumbling block to me, "'for you are setting your mind not on divine things, "'but on human things.' Then Jesus told his disciples, "'If any want to become my followers, Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here today who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word of God that is still speaking You may know the name, Glenn Beck. He's a rather controversial conservative talk show host. He was on Fox News, I believe, from about January 2009 to the summer of 2011. I'm not exactly sure about those dates. But then on March the 2nd, 2010, he lobbed a verbal grenade. He said, I beg you, Look for the words social justice or economic justice on your church website. If you find it, run, it as, run as fast as you can. Yes, leave your church. He believed that these words of social justice and economic justice were code words for Nazism and Communism. Of course, he's rather infamous for lobbing such verbal grenades. It created quite a stir in the world of religion, and a lot of people reacted to his words. My first reaction was, has he read the Bible? (laughs) We're talking about justice. And justice in a simple form means a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others. It means being good neighbors, looking out for the common good, not taking advantage of people or exploiting people, giving people opportunities so that they can thrive and grow and flourish. And justice is an essential attribute of God. It is not an inference that we have made or an an assumption that we have made, but it is something that God, God's self, has told us, that he is a God of justice. In the Psalms, we read that God has established his throne for justice. And God loves righteousness and justice. The prophet Isaiah wrote, For the Lord is a God of justice. And Micah wrote, and this is one of my favorite verses, He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And the prophet Amos even tells us that God does not want acts of sanctimonious religiosity. Amos said that God was despising their assemblies, that God would not accept their offerings of grain and burnt offerings, not their offerings of the fatted animals. God did not want to hear their songs and their music. Rather, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The pure worship of God is justice. I wonder if God today would say, I don't care about you putting the Ten Commandments on public property or putting prayer back in public schools. What I want is justice. God is a God of justice. God desires justice. God demands justice. The prophets revealed the injustices of their times and condemned them. Abraham Heschel, who was a Polish-American rabbi, wrote in his masterpiece work, The Prophets, In a sense, the calling of the prophets may be described as that of an advocate or a champion speaking for those who are too weak to plead their own cause. And they saw their work as interference, as protesting the wrongs inflicted on people, as meddling in the affairs that were considered none of their business. The prophets would not tolerate the wrongs being done to others. And of course their meddling, the interference, was not welcomed. Oftentimes the prophets were told to go back to their home or even to their own country. Sometimes the lives of the prophets were endangered. But that was because they were passionate about God's justice. Our reading from Exodus today is the first time we hear about God's plan for the Exodus. Moses is out watching the sheep of his father-in-law minding his own business when he sees this bush that is burning. And it keeps burning and it keeps burning. It should be consumed, but it keeps going. And so he's curious and walks over there. And when he approaches God informs Moses what God is going to do. He informs Moses that he has observed the misery of the people. He has heard their cry. He knows their sufferings. He has seen how Egypt has oppressed the Israelites. And God was going to deliver them. But God wasn't going to do it alone. He called Moses to be his agent to go to Pharaoh and demand the release and the freedom of the Israelites and it wasn't going to be easy I mean if this wasn't a political task what is it he went to the Pharaoh to demand the end of their oppression but of course Pharaoh said no I mean why should Pharaoh say no the Israelites were a cheap resource for his grandiose building campaign until God sent the plagues and after each plague Pharaoh's heart was hardened even more until the tenth plague and then Pharaoh finally relents and tells the Israelites to go But after they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind and he sends his army after the Israelites and traps the Israelites between the Red Sea and the army. And Moses takes his staff and touches the the waters of the Red Sea and the waters part, the Israelites escape. And when the Egyptian army goes through, the waters come tumbling down. If you ever watched the movie, The Ten Commandments, you know what I'm talking about. There could not have been a more dramatic manifestation of God's justice. Nothing could be more dramatic than that, not even last week's volleyball game here in Nebraska. The Exodus is the central manifestation of God's justice and it was foundational to Israel's understanding of themselves and of God. They see God's justice. Excuse me as I get some water. Whoever uh, chairs the building committee, you need to put a shelf here for those of us who need water while we're preaching. I read another reaction at first that kind of surprised me. It was by the Dr. R. Albert Moore, who was a Baptist theologian, an ordained preacher, and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. It's just down the road from the Presbyterian Seminary. It's kind of the flagship seminary for the Southern Baptist Church. And he starts out by saying that yes, there is an overwhelming affirmation that justice is one of God's main concerns. But then he goes on and says, but the New Testament is stunningly silent on any plan for governmental or social action. And again, my reaction was, has he read the Bible? Really, the New Testament isn't silent about it. It isn't perhaps as out front about it as the Old Testament, but it's there. In the book of Luke, Jesus begins his ministry. The first event is going to the synagogue of his hometown, Nazareth, on the Sabbath day, and he reads from Isaiah. And he reads this passage from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Fred Craddock, who was a seminary professor of preaching and was one of the best preachers we probably have ever had in our nation. He says that Luke places this as the first event of Jesus' ministry because here Jesus is announcing who he is and what he's going to do. He is setting his agenda. You might say it was his inaugural address. Now, we may be familiar with all these except the year of the Lord's favor, That's a reference to the Jubilee. It was a regulation in the Old Testament that every 50 years they celebrated the Jubilee. All debts were canceled that year. Indentured servants, indentured Israelites who became indentured servants were freed. And any land that was sold because of financial difficulty was returned to the original owners. You see, the the small farmers, like farming today, they would have bad years. But in those days, they didn't have the help from the government to get them through bad years. And the only help they could get was from predatory loans. And usually once they borrowed that money, that was it. They lost the farm. And not only that, if a farmer lost his farm, it was pretty well the kiss of death for the family because they then lived in abject poverty and would starve to death. And so it made it possible, this jubilee jubilee year for these farms, ground to return to the original owner, so that anybody that lost because of predatory loans would get their land back. It was to prevent a permanent underclass created by injustices. It provided people with opportunities and the resources to thrive, to grow, to flourish. And we'll return to that just in a second. Now, I got to say there are those who interpret this passage from Luke differently. They, as one person called it, they tend to spiritualize it. The captives are those who are captive to their sins. The oppressed are those who are oppressed by their sins. Those who are blind are blind to God. And the good news that Jesus came to offer was this being freed from their sins and seeing God. Now there's no doubt that Jesus came for salvation as some people think of it, kind of like fire insurance. But Jesus did more than that. And I think it's fair that we give this uh, a material interpretation. You probably won't be surprised, but in the Presbyterian Church, we also have a policy about how we interpret scripture. And one of those guidelines is to let the focus be the plain text of the scripture, to deal with the text as it is given And this preaching to the poor, helping the burden the oppressed, I think on the surface, it's a material interpretation. Now, the Jubilee year, the year of the Lord's favor, probably was utopian rather than a reality. We don't have any proof that it was practiced. But the point is It is a principle of justice, of helping those who lost because of injustices. And the people in the synagogue that day that heard these words from Jesus would have known that Isaiah, like the traditions of Amos and Micah and Hosea, attacked the social and the economic injustices of their day. And they would have known that this Preaching the year of the Lord's favor was all about justice. And so Robert Parham, who is a Baptist, has said Luke 4, 18 to 19, was one of the most ignored, watered-down, spiritualized, or glossed-over text in many Baptist pulpits, evading or emptying Jesus' first statement of his moral agenda. And I would add, it's probably not just Baptist pulpits. He goes on to say, Jesus said the gospel was for the poor and the oppressed, speaking to those at the margins of society. Now, there's no doubt that Jesus came to save us from our sins, but there's more to it than that. Both Jesus and Paul believed that salvation had an ethical component to it. You remember when Jesus came and talked to Zacchaeus? And in response, Zacchaeus said that he would return four times to anybody that he had defrauded. Jesus' response to that was, salvation has come to this house. Salvation is very holistic. The word, the Greek word for save, can also mean to heal in the Greek. And the Exodus is a paradigm of that salvation. And so, justice is not only a part, was not only a part of Jesus' agenda, but also a part of the church's agenda. As God called Moses to be an agent, as God called the prophets to be agents for justice, so God calls us to be agents for justice. Now you may not want to participate in any kind of protest movements, Our daughter did in Louisville when the police shot the black woman and mom and dad were a little bit worried about her going to that protest movement. But contact your representatives. Let them know how you feel about issues. Sign petitions, read about issues that interest you. The Presbyterian Church has an office in Washington, D.C. that office relays to our representatives the policies of the Presbyterian Church, and they can't talk to these representatives unless it's issues that the church has approved. And it's not a top-down process. People are gathered together to write this policy, it comes to General Assembly, and they vote on it. And the Washington office can only say what those policies say but that office has an email list and if there's an important issue they will send you an email it's already got a typed out message and you put your name and address in there that automatically sends that message to the appropriate people i do that if you're interested in that let me know but those are just some of the ways in which we can work for justice but the one thing we shouldn't do is run away. Our reading from Matthew reminds us that following Jesus, discipleship is not going to be easy. But we are not called to run away. We are not called to be silent about the injustices. He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Amen.